Hebrews 11.7 says this, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Will you pray with me, friends? God, it is good to be here. It is good to think about your love and your word and your eternal plan. And I would pray, Lord, that as we spend our time together this morning in your word, that you will just enliven our hearts to the glory of the massive story of redemption. Help us to come to and love Jesus. We pray it in his holy name. Amen. Y'all can be seated. So like, um, like looking at a large painting, looking at the Bible to truly see it requires more than one perspective. Sometimes you need to look up close, verse by verse, to see massive truths packed into just a few words. That's our normal way of handling things here, by the way. We tend to be a verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, teaching church with lots of sermon points and all the rest. But there are times when it's good to step back and try to take in the big picture. You know, in point of fact, the Bible is a story. It's a true story, so don't, when I say the word story, don't think fiction. And the Bible is a massive story. It's the true story of God. It is, it is as some people have said, not just history, it is His story. And it's good for our souls to see the big picture of the work of God. And we should know that every aspect of this story points us to Jesus. Back in the month of October, do you guys remember October? It's a long time ago. Back then, we began our look at the big picture of the Bible by looking back before there was time. Not the beginning, but before the beginning. Before God created, the persons of the Holy Trinity, our one true God, covenanted together to accomplish God's eternal plan. God the Father elects a people to salvation and sent the Son to be their Redeemer. He promised the Son that He would have the redeemed as His reward. God the Son willingly chose to be sent to accomplish the redemption of the elect. God the Holy Spirit would bring about the Son's incarnation, aid the Son in His ministry, and apply the redemption that was accomplished by the Son to the elect. He would indwell them. He would seal them to eternal life. And we call that whole big plan for the outworking of human history the covenant of redemption. Well, two weeks ago, we took a look at the beginning. In the beginning, God created everything. And of all the things God created, humanity... Men and women made in the image of God would be God's greatest treasure. God created man, the first man, Adam, and he placed him in a perfect environment. We read about that in our doctrine lesson this morning. God initiated a covenant relationship with Adam, and it included a test of Adam's works. Now, God gave Adam several tasks to perform, but they weren't his test. The single test for Adam had to do with one prohibition. God forbade the man from eating of the fruit of one particular tree. 
if Adam could simply obey this one command of God, eventually God would grant Adam and all of his descendants life with God forever. But if Adam disobeyed this command, he would earn death for himself and all of his descendants. God also created woman, a helpmate for the man, and he blessed them. He set these sinless people in a perfect place. Now, y'all know how the story goes, right? The devil deceived the woman. The man, not deceived, but just plain rebellious, ate of the forbidden tree and fell into sin. And because Adam is the first man, he's the representative head for humanity. And all people who descend from Adam will be under Adam's guilt. The reader of this story would assume, by the way, that at this point, if this was a new story to you, you think, well, what's God going to do? He'll put Adam to death and he'll start over with humanity. You guys know what that's like, right? You ever, you ever try to draw a picture and realize it didn't go the way you wanted to? And what do you do with it? What do you do when you're drawing a picture and it don't work? Chuck it, right? But in point of fact, God let Adam live. Though Adam was spiritually separated from God, spiritually dead, God made a few major promises. Now, on the downside, work, marriage, and family would be difficult. Have you guys ever experienced difficulty in those things before? No. And death, with all of its related hardships, would be part of the human experience. But there's a good side. God did not immediately kill Adam. God promised that Adam and his wife would have offspring. And God promised that one day, Someone would come into the world, born of the line of the woman, who would crush the devil. One day, God would send a promised one into the world who would make right what man had done wrong in the garden. Well, Adam believed God would keep his word. He named his wife Eve, saying she would be the mother of all the living. And God, out of God's mercy, clothed Adam and Eve. They would live. But God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. The Lord placed an angel with a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. And from that point, the idea of anybody doing enough good to earn his way to God is a pure impossibility. You can't be good enough to get your way back to God. And that's where we left off. The covenant with Adam is still in force. God still commands humanity to live up to his perfection. But because of Adam's fall, neither Adam nor anybody who descends from Adam's line will ever be able to earn God's favor through their behavior. The only hope that humanity has is the one God promised would come and crush the devil. So turn in your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 4. This morning we're going to carry the grand story forward. I want to show us another key covenant in human history. And I want us to see God's great goodness and our deep need of God's grace. And we'll see it all in God's covenant with Noah. 
Now, just so you know, you know we normally have a set of points. Just write stuff down. I don't have new points for you. We're telling a story today, okay? Look at verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 4. You with me? All right, just making sure you're still here. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Though God had put the man and his wife out of the garden, the Lord promised them offspring. Somebody descended from the woman would crush the serpent. So what great news! We see in chapter 4 that Adam and Eve have two children. Could one of these boys be the one to set right what went wrong when Adam rebelled against the Lord? Well, you guys know the story. What do you think? Is one of these two going to be the one? No. Turns out that the infection of Adam's rebellion against the Lord was present in Adam's descendants. Cain grew jealous of his brother Abel. Cain refused to worship the Lord in the way that God authorized. And Cain, in a fit of jealous rage, murdered his own brother. So now Abel's dead. And Cain is clearly not the perfect one who's going to fix things. Cain is sent away from the family with a wife. And he becomes the father of his own family line. Genesis chapter 4 records for us the people that are born to Cain. In in the common grace of God, by the way, some of these descendants of Cain accomplished amazing amazing things. They they built the first cities. They they herded livestock. They fashioned musical instruments. They developed tools. But some of the descendants of Cain were truly, truly wicked. Lamech, as an example, is the first man to marry two women. He went against God's design for marriage and tried to destroy the family, though I don't know if he even knew it. Lamech also bragged about being a murderer himself. He claimed, I'm way worse than Cain. And by the end of Genesis 4, if you're following the story, our hearts are heavy. Cain is wicked. Abel's dead. Cain's descendants, though clearly experiencing the kindness of God, are dark-hearted, nasty people. But then look down at verses 25 and 26 of Genesis 4. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So with the birth of Seth, we begin to see that God's promise has not failed. Aren't you glad about that? There's another line. There's another branch on the family tree. And the descendants of Seth call on the name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord. God clearly must have been communicating to his people his name and showing them how to honor him. Maybe God even reminded these people that there's a hope that will come. Now, Adam and Eve actually had many children. But only one line of the family tree, only one branch of the family tree is the line that's going to carry with it the promise of God And bring it to fruition. It's not the family tree branch of Cain. That one's not going to bring the Savior into the world. It's not that of Abel because Abel's dead. 
the descendants of Seth are going to carry forward the promise. But Seth himself is not the promised one. So flip over to chapter 5. By the way, we've got to make it to chapter 9, so don't think we're going fast. Don't laugh at me. All right, so <laughs> we're going to get there. <laughs> Genesis 5. Here we see the genealogy of the line of promise. Genesis 5, verses 3 through 5. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. So not only is Seth born, God also allowed Adam and Eve to have other, take note of this, if you're a highlighter, highlight this, other sons and daughters. Have you guys ever thought about how important that two-word phrase is right there, and daughters? What happens if there ain't no daughters? Then the promise dies. That is the grace of God. The Lord will ensure that the human race continues by continuing to have people born either male or female. That's good from God. Amen? And we see that Adam ultimately died. The curse of sin does bring death. It brings physical and spiritual death. And even if Adam was forgiven by God, and I believe he was, even if he was granted a renewed relationship with God, and I believe he was, Adam died physically as a result of the entrance of sin into the world. And the rest of Genesis 5 gives us this pattern that we see here. At a certain age, a certain couple gives birth to a certain son. They have other sons and daughters. They live so much longer, and then eventually they die. There's a couple notable exceptions, but that's the pattern of life, marriage, childbirth, and death. It runs through the normal human experience in Genesis 5. And eventually, there's another man named Lamech. This is not the wicked one. He's born into Seth's family line. Look down at Genesis 5, 28 to 31. When Lamech had lived 182 years... He fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. If one calculates the years from the creation of Adam to the birth of Noah, just over a millennium has gone by. But something about the birth of Noah has gotten our attention. In point of fact, this man, he's going to be an extremely important part of the overall story that God's telling. Could it be that Noah is the promised rescuer? If you were reading this story for the first time, that question would be popping up in your brain. So let's turn to Genesis 6. And what you see in Genesis 6 is that though God has been gracious, the world is dark. While some people who descended from Seth worship God, none of those who descended from Cain seem to. 
And as the population of the world grows, so grows the wickedness of mankind. And don't forget the devil. Satan and his demons work to corrupt humanity, seeking to nullify the promise of God. All that stuff you read in the first half of Genesis 6 is the work of Satan through men and women to try to make the promise not come to pass. And how dark did things get? Look at Genesis 6 verses 5 through 8. How dark did it get? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Do you see what happened there, folks? All of humanity was wicked. How wicked were they? Mankind grew so wicked that the Bible, using human language for our unchanging, unchangeable God, says that God grieved and regretted that he had ever made mankind to begin with And so God determined, as a just, holy, righteous judge, that he would destroy all life on earth. Keep in mind, though, what we learned over the first few messages back in October. Before creating anything, God had a plan that involved God sending his son to rescue a people for himself out of humanity in the garden Adam, as the representative of all mankind, thumbed his nose at God and ate the fruit in an act of defiance. And all humanity is guilty of Adam's sin. So we've got two seemingly incompatible issues floating around here. God will destroy humanity because all humans are wicked. And... God will save a people for himself out of humanity because God is not only just, God is also gracious. And this is when we emphasize verse 8 of Genesis 6. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What's going to happen next? Do you guys know the story? God would, in fact, send a flood over the earth to wipe out all living things, and that is justice for mankind's sin. But God would also rescue Noah and his family and and, and preserve representatives of all the animals on the ark. And this is God demonstrating his mercy. So Genesis 6, 7, and 8 Give us the account of Noah and the ark. It's odd, by the way, in our day, that most people, when they think of Noah and they think of the ark, think of a children's story. Oftentimes, parents decorate their baby's nursery with pictures of a happy little Noah on a happy little boat with happy little animals looking like a happy little floating zoo. 
Can I suggest to you that that may not be the most accurate picture? The flood was the most horrifying disaster in global history. Every breathing thing outside the walls of the ark died. Now, I'm not suggesting that anybody needs to go redecorate their nursery. Just know that the true picture of this account is utterly horrifying, terrifying, and right. Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. So once the judgment had fallen, God again had mercy on Noah and gave Noah a fresh start on the earth. You know what? In many ways, the account of the flood waters subsiding And the ark coming to rest actually gives us a second picture of the creation account. Think about this. At creation, what did it say that the Spirit of God was doing? It was hovering over the waters before God made the land appear. Remember that in Genesis 1? In Noah's time, it says that a wind of God blew over the waters. Did you know that the word for wind and the word for spirit are the exact same Hebrew word? At creation, God pulled the waters back to reveal the land. After the flood, the waters subsided and dry land appeared. While there will be no Garden of Eden and there's no tree of life, there's no opportunity for Noah to live well enough to earn eternal life, we're supposed to see that Noah is going to play a similar role to the role of Adam. In the garden, Adam played a priestly role. The garden was like an earthly temple, a special place for the worship of God. Noah immediately functions as a priest and a representative for humanity after the flood. Look down at verses 20 to 22 of chapter 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not Cease. So Noah offers a sacrifice to God, and the Lord is pleased. But notice what God says about mankind the heart of man is still corrupted. Verse 21 God says, For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So God has given Noah a new environment in which to function. God has given Noah and humanity a fresh start. The sons of Cain are dead. But the evil of Adam's rebellion against God, the evil of Adam's sin, still lives in Noah's very flesh. 
And the flood didn't take that away. Something about the sacrifice of the animals that Noah offered, though, prompts a glorious promise from God. Though mankind is corrupt, God will never again destroy the earth until His promise to rescue a people for Himself is fully completed. Until the last day, God will ensure that the earth continues to spin, that the seasons continue to follow one after another, and that human beings continue to live. So if you're worried about it today... No, the world we live in is not going to be destroyed by war, global warming, or a rogue asteroid. Now, we should not be lax in caring for the earth. I'm not telling that to you. But the earth is not going to stop supporting life until the day of Jesus' return. So what do you think it is, though, about a sacrifice that brings this promise out from God? We know that no animal sacrifice has ever been enough to cover the sins of humanity. You get that, right? When you're wrong, you can't blame your cat, and that be enough. And they're evil. That was probably the best thing Jason said all sermon last week, right? <laughs> um, no, he, his, his message was good, and I loved it. But, but dogs are better than cats was just a, a given. But you can't blame a critter and have that cover your sin. It's never been enough to cover your sin. But both with Adam and with Noah, a sacrifice has helped to keep the people alive. Why? The answer is Jesus. The sacrifice of animals in the Old Testament points the mind of God toward the one actual sacrifice that God will make and that God will accept that will cover all of the sins of all the people God will rescue. The animal sacrifice points back to the covenant of redemption and it points forward to the new covenant. It serves as a placeholder. It serves as an IOU from God to himself as he awaits the completion of his glorious plan. Now, turn to Genesis 9. I told you we'd get there. You didn't believe me, did you? Here we're going to see God enter another covenant. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. We'll start off and set the background. And God blessed Noah and his sons, said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they're delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your life blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image." And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. So here in verses 1 through 7, we see God setting up the reset of creation. By the way, how many creation bells ring in your head when you read that? God makes promises to mankind. He gives humanity duties to fulfill. 
Remember, God had given Adam duties to fulfill in the garden that they weren't the covenant, but they were important. Adam was to tend and keep the garden. Adam and his wife were to be fruitful and multiply. Adam was to have dominion over all the creatures of the earth. God gave Adam and Eve food in the garden. None of those were the covenant. The covenant terms were simple. Don't eat of the one tree and you live. Eat of the tree and you will die. Obey and live. Disobey and die. Covenant of works between God and Adam. Now verse 1 and verse 7 of this chat that we just read. God calls Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's a repeat of God's charge to Adam. Humanity is to show the world that God rules it by spreading God's regents, his images, little kings and queens in God's image all over the world. Verse 2, God says that mankind will rule over the animals. But a close reader will notice that something here has changed Before, Adam simply had authority. Now the animals will have a fear of mankind on them. The rule of man over the animal kingdom will occur, but it's going to be harsher and uglier than it would have been had Adam obeyed. Verse 3, God provides food for humanity. This time, mankind is allowed to eat meat. I expected an amen, didn't get it. (laughs) Yeah, some of you are happy about this. Before... God gave all the trees of the garden except for one as mankind's sustenance. Verse 4, mankind is commanded to drain the blood out of animals that we eat, indicating that God is the owner of all life. Verses 5 and 6, something else interesting happens here. Lifeblood, human lifeblood, requires a reckoning. Anybody who takes a human life will give an account to God. Mankind bears the image of God. Thus, you kill any human being, it's a big deal. Murder, the intentional taking of an innocent human life, is an attack on the very image of God, which means you're attacking God himself. Thus, murder is itself to be punished by the death penalty. Now, take note. We see in the Word of God that the foundation for all human government has just been laid. God gives mankind authority to exercise judgment over other humans when those humans wrongfully take human life. In fact, God requires a reckoning for human lifeblood from the collective people. So what you see in the first seven verses of Genesis 9 is that God has commands for all of humanity. Again, they're not the covenant yet. But they establish the fact that these people are still people in the image of God, still under God's blessing to be fruitful and multiply, still called to fill the earth, still provided for by God's creation, still responsible to rule for the glory of God. And you know what, folks? We don't even need the rest of Scripture to know that certain things that are issues today are outside of the will of God. It's right here. What's a hot-button issue? Abortion is the willful taking of a human life. It is the willful destruction of someone made in the image of God. And God requires a reckoning. The, The promotion of homosexuality and transgenderism in our society is a battle against 
God. Mutilating human bodies? Going against the call of God to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth for God's glory? God says no. Racism. Hating anybody made in the image of God just because of the color of their skin? That's anti-God. The destruction of the family, the embrace of violence, the turning against authority, the unwillingness of government to restrain evil and to promote good? All of these in our day demonstrate an opposition to the very command of God given to all humanity right after the flood. But look at 8 to 17. Genesis 9, 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be flood to, to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between, uh, between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God establishes his covenant. He says it three times here. That's interesting wording, by the way. Establish. Establish is different wording than making a new covenant. Literally, in Hebrew, when we talk about setting up a new covenant, they used to say cutting a covenant. But using the word establish here may indicate to us that what God's talking about is continuing something that God has already promised. Continuing a covenant God's already made. But the covenant with Noah, well, it may not start something new. What it does is it carries on the human relationship with God. Noah has been given by God the same commission as Adam was given to fill the earth to demonstrate the common grace of God over his creation. Mankind still exists in the image of God. We still have the responsibility to obey the commands of God. But since this is not a totally new creation, since mankind fell along with Adam, there's no way, there's no way for humanity to earn their way to God through works of obedience. The covenant with Adam in the garden had conditions. If Adam obeyed, Adam would have life. If Adam disobeyed, Adam would die. God would either bless or curse Adam depending on Adam's choice. But the continuation of the covenant here does not include in it mankind fulfilling any sort of human requirement for God to preserve creation. God in relationship to mankind, is making a promise and God is binding himself to it. 
God will never again send a flood to destroy all the life on earth. Even though we deserve it, God's not going to do it. Instead, God will preserve the earth and life on earth until the day when all of God's promises are perfectly, finally fulfilled. God will preserve creation until he saves his elect by sending the one he promised us in Genesis 3.15, the one born of woman who would crush the devil. By the way, I saw someone draw this, or heard someone describing drawing this once. So if you can picture the entire timeline, and the promise of grace is sort of this beautiful arching promise over all creation. Think about God promised Noah as the scaffolding, the, 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 the underneath the timeline that holds the whole thing up because he's never going to let the world fall apart until he finishes all of his promises. Now the covenant God made here has a sign, has a mark that points to it. It's the rainbow in the clouds. God wants humanity to know that though it will rain again, it'll never rain so as to destroy the entire world. I think it's interesting that God uses the word bow here. You know that the word bow for the rainbow is the same word that's used like a bow with an arrow? It's as if God is saying to humanity, I've got a war bow. I've got a weapon for your destruction. But I'm going to hang it up in the clouds as a reminder that I've committed to keep life going on earth. Keep the world turning until all of my gracious promises have been fulfilled. So where does this covenant leave you and me? We started this series pointing out that God had a covenant with himself to save a people for himself. We saw that Adam violated the covenant with God. He earned death for himself. And as our representative head, Adam earned death for you and for me and for all humanity. But God held back. God did not immediately destroy all living things right away. Instead, God made a promise of a Savior to come who would crush the devil. And then, once humanity had multiplied on the earth, we saw that mankind grew progressively more wicked and God sent upon the earth the death that we all deserve in the form of the flood. But God also chose to preserve for himself a family, a remnant of humanity in Noah and his family. And besides rescuing these people, God commissioned them to build the world rightly. And God chose to make a covenant with humanity, a one-sided covenant, a unilateral covenant, in which God swears he will preserve the earth until all of his promises are kept. All of them come to fruition. God will not let the world collapse on itself or be utterly destroyed. God instead has a plan that he will bring into the world the Savior that he's been promising. And today... You and I are under the effects of these covenants. By the grace of God, we know we live in a world God's not going to destroy out from under our feet. 
See, the way you can know that until Jesus comes back, the earth is not just going to fly to pieces is what God promised in Genesis because it deserves it otherwise. God will not let even one of his promises fail. We, like Noah, are charged to fill the earth with the glory of God. We, like Noah, are charged to respect human life because people are made in the image of God. And there's a sense in which what God said to Adam applies to humanity. We're called to be perfect before God, but you and I know we cannot. We've never been perfect. We're not able to be perfect. And even if we tried to be perfect, Romans 5.12 tells us we all sinned when Adam sinned. And Genesis 8.21 reminds us that because of Adam's sin, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So where's our hope? Where's our hope? Our hope is found in the promise of God. God promised he would send somebody into the world, descended from Eve, who would crush the devil. God promised Noah he would keep the world going until that promise was fulfilled. And today we know God did fulfill the promise he made. God the Father sent God the Son to the earth to rescue a people for himself out of sinful humanity. Jesus came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the requirement that Adam did not fulfill. Jesus died as a blood offering, a sacrifice for sins that Jesus never committed, that he might pay the price for our wrong. Jesus rose from the grave and proved that he fully conquered death. And Jesus invites people to come to him in faith and repentance to find life, not because they're good, but because Jesus is good. So here's the thing you've got to think about for yourself. Right here, right now, here in my voice. You are either in Adam or in Christ. If you're in Adam, God has commanded you to live out a perfection that you have already failed to achieve. All people in Adam die and spend forever in hell. But God sent Jesus to be the new head of the human race, the new Adam, because Noah couldn't do it. Cain couldn't do it. Abel couldn't do it. Seth couldn't do it. But Jesus did. If you will entrust your life and your soul to Jesus, God will give you the record of Jesus' absolute Total God-pleasing perfection. God will forgive you. God will grant you eternal life. And you will go from being represented by Adam to being represented by Jesus Christ. God has patiently preserved the, this world, this corrupt world, this God-hating world. God has preserved this world till today. And God still hangs his bow in the clouds as a reminder that we deserve a destruction that God is not going to send until all the chosen are saved. I urge you, be one of God's children. Turn away from sin. Turn away from trust in self. Turn away from Adam and put your trust in Jesus. Rest in Jesus and thank God 
for keeping the globe spinning long enough for you to be saved. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for your promises. And they are more and they are bigger than we've ever imagined. But you fulfill every last one of them. And we know that. God, I would ask you, help us see the glory of what you've done. The glory of your promise to preserve creation. Help us see the glory of being in Christ and not represented by Adam's fall. And if anybody here doesn't know you, help them turn to Jesus today. That's our prayer in Christ's holy name. Amen.